to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back once again to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, you guys may be aware that a lot of libertarians and other free market advocates can occasionally take positions that are deemed somewhat controversial, to say the least. Controversy is kind of what we do here at the Lions of Liberty podcast and over at our website, lionsofliberty.com, which I hope you guys are all checking out. Each and every day, we strive to advance the ideas of liberty. But enough about us. Why are some things controversial? That's what we have to ask. It's usually because people get certain ideas in their minds, certain images... They prejudge about a concept without necessarily looking deeper into it. And then when you go to have a conversation about it, well, it's too late because they already know. (laughs) They've already got all these ideas in their mind. And it clouds any rational conversation that might occur. Now, one thing we often hear about, one of the quote-unquote evils of capitalism, as they say, is that of sweatshops. We hear the word sweatshops. I mean, right there in the term, sweat, we picture young kids sweating all day long, working hard, making low wages, in poor working conditions, for long hours, just so us fancy Westerners can get some nice new sneakers. How could anyone support such terrible things? Well, as economist Henry Hazlitt points out in his book, Economics in One Lesson, highly recommend it, when we come to talking about economics, there is the scene... There are certain things we see on the surface, but then there is also the unseen. There are other things at play that we might not be thinking about. And today we're going to look at a little bit of the unseen when it comes to sweatshops. And my guest today is an expert on the economics of sweatshops. He is the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. He is also a senior fellow with the Independent Institute, as well as the North American editor of the Review of Austrian Economics. He's the author of several books, including his latest, Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy. Benjamin Powell, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, Mark. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Now, Ben, before we get into the subject of your book and discuss sweatshops, Do you think you could give us just a quick overview of how you first became interested in free market economics and how that led you to your current position over at Texas Tech starting the Free Market Institute? I guess I got interested in free market economics while I was an undergrad, not because I had any particular pro-market professor. I just liked the underlying logic of econ, but then I was at a seminar and they threw books at you and you answered questions like Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. So I read that, and then I found out Hayek was his colleague, read him, found out Mises was his teacher, read him, read a little Murray Rothbard, and uh, next thing you know, I decided to graduate school at George Mason to study Austrian economics, public choice, new institutional economic type stuff. I had taught at San Jose State in Suffolk since then, and just moved about a year ago to Texas Tech as they were founding a new free market institute, and it was a wonderful opportunity to promote free markets at a big school and try to turn this into one of the premier places to do free market economics in the country. Now, the word sweatshops is one that, well, 
undoubtedly invokes all sorts of images right off the bat before we even get to have a conversation about it. You know, you immediately think of 12-year-old kids being whipped and beaten and yelled at, slaving away all day long just to make all sorts of fancy new electronics and new sneakers for us overindulgent Westerners. Why did you decide this was a subject that really needed a little deeper economic analysis to really see what was really going on there and get through these kind of images that we all think of right off the bat? Yeah, so I think we have to be careful with, with that imagery, particularly when you bring up the whipped and beaten part. Uh, the vast majority of sweatshops are, are non-coercive in, in that they don't use violence to get their workers there. It's very rare to find instances of what I would call slave labor, where it's either the, the threat of violence from the company or the, their government that sends the workers to the sweatshop. Instead, these are places where workers choose to work, admittedly from a bad choice set, but still that choice has significance. And unfortunately, the imagery that comes with this often makes our hearts go in one direction when our heads really should be taking us in another. So it requires thinking through the economics of what's behind sweatshop employment to understanding what actions we can take that will help workers and which actions will harm them. I'm curious what you think about the word sweatshop itself. You do use it in the title of your book, but do you think that that word off the bat is kind of one of the problems? It's kind of, is it a misnomer at all? Or do you think there is any legitimacy to that term sweatshop? Yeah, well, certainly it has negative connotations with people, and it's one that's you know been around for more than a hundred years in various forms. But you know, people use it to describe low-wage manufacturing, or at least manufacturing with wages much lower than what we would consider normal here in the United States or another developed country, and coupled with that, long working hours, poor working conditions, which could involve unhealthy or unsafe, or for that matter, hot working conditions unpredictable hours, often legal mandates not being complied with in a particular country. That's the general bundle of things we get when we think of sweatshop. And this is the name that people have put on it. So I wasn't afraid to use it in the title of the book because, hey, that's what we're talking about. Now, Ben, I'm sure throughout your research on the subject, you've come across many of the common objections to sweatshops. So I just want to kind of play sort of anti-sweatshop devil's advocate here with you, run through some of those common objections and see what you have to say about them. Let's have fun, Mark. (laughs) Now, firstly, sweatshop workers, they work extremely long hours, often with very little time off for very low pay. So how can this situation possibly be considered a good thing for the workers themselves? All right. This is the very very basic part of it. You're right, Mark. These things, of course, we can aspire to have these people have higher standards of living with shorter hours and better pay. But we have to think about what came before it. The history of the world is one of poverty. We live in a privileged country at a privileged level of development by historical standards right now. And unfortunately, not all areas of the world have yet become wealthy and developed. And so for these workers, it's the poverty that existed prior to sweatshops coming there. That is the norm. And these sweatshops, although the working standards are bad by our standards, They're an improvement from what existed in these countries beforehand, and that is why the sweatshop workers choose to work there. And in fact, when we look at our own history, in particular, actually, where I grew up, I grew up in New England. I went to college at University of Massachusetts at Lowell, and I grew up in what was known as the Shoe City of Haverhill, Massachusetts. This is where our industrial revolution took place. And if we look at what the working conditions and wages were like in the 19th century United States while we were going through it, it's exactly what we see in these foreign countries today that are poor. So sweatshops are a stage. So sweatshops are two things, actually. They're the least bad option for workers given their current constraints 
and they're also part of the process that eventually brings higher living standards that get run up sweatshops. Oh, ben, what about the children? Aren't children often found working in these sweatshops, working all day long when they could really just be at home or at school learning? Or you know, what about kids that are working at such young ages in these places? Yeah, I have a chapter in the bookmark called Save the Children, question mark, actually. And yes, children often do work in sweatshops, just as they did, by the way, in the 19th century U.S. and, and Great Britain. But the point here is that the alternative that you just suggested, that they should be staying home or in school, isn't the alternative that these children face. Child labor is unfortunate, but it needs to come to an end through these countries becoming more productive and wealthier, not by legislative fiat or boycotts from the United States. When we look around the world, we find that children work in poorer countries. As countries become richer, child labor disappears. Get up to $11,000 per capita, and child labor is virtually gone. And really, it's in those countries that are under $5,000 per capita income where we see significant levels of child employment. Then the other myth associated with this is that if we got rid of their jobs in sweatshops, that they would go to some better alternative. The kids are working because their families are desperately poor and trying to feed, clothe, and shelter their families. If we took away their employment in factories, these children simply go to other sectors. In fact, in the countries where sweatshops locate, manufacturing is a teeny percentage of all child employment. Most of the children who work in these countries work in agriculture or domestic services, both places where remunerative returns from it are much lower than working in factories. And in fact, actually, injury rates or working conditions certainly aren't better in agriculture. Children injury rates are higher there than they are in manufacturing. So simply put, if we take the sweatshop jobs away prior to the growth occurring in these countries, we just displace kids and put them into worse circumstances. All right, Ben, well, let's say I do buy your premise that the sweatshop might be a better situation than, you know, whatever they might be doing, working in a field or whatever that they might be up to if they weren't working in the sweatshop. But what about the fact that these sweatshops just simply do not pay their workers enough to meet their basic needs? If this kid is there slaving away, I don't want to use, don't want to use the word slave, but since he's there voluntarily, but if this kid is there working all day long and he doesn't even make enough to feed himself or his family, how is this still considered a good thing? Well, we have to understand the economics behind wage determination. And this is true whether we're talking about a job in the United States or a job in a sweatshop. The upper bound of compensation is going to be the worker's marginal productivity. Sorry, that's a little econ-speaky. But basically, how much that employee contributes to the firm's bottom line. If they can create $1 an hour worth of value, that's the maximum amount an employer is willing to pay them. Of course, an employer would like to pay them nothing and take the entire dollar per hour in, in profit, say. But the bottom, the minimum that a wage can be, is whatever the worker's next best alternative is. So when we see sweatshop wages that are low by our standard, it's the product of two things, not having lots of good options for the workers and those workers not being particularly productive. I should say also, often through no fault of their own, there's plenty of government policies in these countries that artificially restrict labor productivity by providing a bad institutional environment, namely lack of respect for private property rights, economic freedom, and rule of law that would allow all of these people to be more productive. But if we're going to talk about raising their wages, we have to be talking about doing things that would influence one of these two bounds, either make the workers more productive or give them more opportunities. Sweatshops do both of these things. So if there's only one employer in town and it's just Nike 
and the alternative is subsistence agriculture and Nike, there's a big drop in that lower bound. But when Nike and Reebok are both in town bidding, then it's going to push employee compensation up towards their upper bound. And that's actually where the real game is, because when we look across countries, about 85% of the variation in wages can be explained by differences in worker productivity. So moving that upper bound, productivity, that's the big game. And what do we need? The proximate causes of higher standards of living, of higher productivity, are going to be technology, physical capital, human capital. Don't sweatshops actually bring some of this as part of the process of development? When going to poorer countries, they bring technology with them of new ways of doing things. They bring physical capital with them that they invest. And workers build skills on the job, at least relative to what they were doing before. So all three of these proximate causes of development occur. The upshot of this is that can happen much more quickly now than it used to. So the United States actually experienced a similar type of development. Where did we get our technology from? It was from Great Britain first initially by stealing the plans for the power looms and such through them actually coming and investing more in the country. And that's actually where we got our capital, physical capital, too. A lot of that came from Great Britain. So this is the same process that happens in the world today, except the world is a much wealthier place. There's much better technology and more capital. So when these countries get their institutions right, the process can go much quicker. And the United States were a little over a 100-year process probably from pre-industrialization to what I'd call post-sweatshop standard, standards on the job. But look at the Asian tigers. If we look at the end of World War II, it's Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea that we would consider our sweatshop countries. All of them had basically a pre-industrial standard of living. For them, in about a generation and a half, they went from pre-industrial to first world living standards. And it's because they got their institutions right and capital flowed in from around the world so their growth could happen that much quicker. And that's what we're seeing starting to go on in India, China, and other places today. What about the charge that working conditions in sweatshops are inherently unsafe? How can worker safety be insured or guaranteed without, say, an OSHA-type organization in place that can really regulate working conditions? How are these sweatshops able to regulate worker safety, or is there just no safety whatsoever? Safety comes through the market process as well. So a firm is indifferent to compensating its employees through a dollar of wages or a dollar in other in-kind benefits. These could be any other number of working conditions you want to talk about. Vacation time, better health on the job, better safety on the job, more predictable working hours, whatever. To them, a dollar of compensation is a dollar of compensation is a dollar of compensation. It's coming off their bottom line. With a slight caveat of you know adjusting for productivity differences, to some extent, a little bit of safety where a worker's not chopping their finger off or whatever makes them more productive, so they might actually bias towards it. But for the most part, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. Who cares is the employee, just like we do. So we call it some economics compensating differentials. It's one reason why in the United States, it's the working conditions of garbage men that dictate that garbage men get paid more than other people with similar skill levels because the job is less pleasant and less safe. Now, if you put yourself in the context of a very poor person in the third world, if you're trying to feed, clothe, shelter your family, you want the vast majority of your wages in money. As you become more productive and can get greater total compensation, then you start demanding more of your other compensation to come in the form of increased safety at work. And what we find when we look at the United States is that most of the things that we associate with workplace labor laws, they come into place after 
These are already de facto what's going on in the industry. Basically, competition already improved the working conditions, and laws later come in and just codify it. This is true whether we look at child labor, minimum wages, workplace safety, all of these things come when we're at a much higher level of development than what these poor countries are in today. I mean, our first child labor law by a state was in Massachusetts, and it prevented something like people under 12 from working more than eight hours a day in a factory. It was hardly a restriction at all. Until 1938, we don't get national child labor standards, and it's no accident that in today's dollars by that time, our income is up over $10,000 per capita, which roughly coincides with just about the income level that you see child labor disappear anyway. You mentioned OSHA. We didn't get OSHA until 1970 in the United States when we had well over $20,000 per capita income at that time. And uh, incidentally, injury rates had been on a massive decline in the United States well before OSHA. And since adopting OSHA, we don't see any increase in that rate of decline. It's our economic growth driving it, not some bureaucrats in Washington. So in short, or I suppose in long, given how long I've been answering you, uh, it's market forces drive higher safety in the workplace, not government regulation. Now, Ben, I'm a little confused. I thought that politicians were generally our leaders and they decided what was best for us and then they passed the laws and then it happened. But you seem to kind of be implying that the market just it tends to shape things on their own and politicians sort of come in afterwards and are just followers and kind of restating things that had already occurred. Is that where you're going with this? Um, well, the bumbling politicians like to get in the way and prevent the market process from doing lots of things. But in the case of these, they were unable to in the United States. So there were labor reform movements going back into the mid-19th century. In fact, you can find activist quotes at the time about the factories here that if you uh, change the place of the quote, you could stick the exact same thing in, in the mouth of somebody talking about a third world sweatshop today. But the reality is they never actually got to push through any of the legislation because there were other business interests that lobbied against putting those things in until the businesses no longer needed to lobby against it because they already were forced by market forces to compensate workers that way. Unfortunately, what we have is people in the United States now who want to pass these laws and stick them on poorer countries because it will damage their competitiveness. The labor unions in the United States take up the cause of poor sweatshop workers, but they do it disingenuously because they understand that cheaper labor abroad is a substitute for more productive American labor, and that if they can price their competition out of the market through regulation, that uh, it'll be better off for their, there are any wealthy union members here in the U.S. Uh, so it's no accident that it's the wealthy countries that try to stick it to the, the developing countries when it comes to WTO meetings for the advocates of the labor standards. The poor countries understand that this stuff will destroy their development, so they try to keep it out of there. So are a lot of these kind of safety regulations that you see in more developed countries and that kind of thing, is this kind of just another example of crony capitalism, of, of big business protecting themselves from maybe a smaller business that might start up a quote-unquote sweatshop with much lower costs and start to compete with those bigger businesses? Um. Well, I don't want to be too general about that in the context of being within an already developed country. Because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you tried to open up a sweatshop in the United States today, even if there were no laws against paying two cents an hour and having high risk of injury at work, you wouldn't find any employees. So it's not our laws that are protecting people from that right now or preventing some startup from coming and competing on the margin. Instead, what it is, is it's a crony capitalism of preventing imports from other countries 
where those working conditions would attract workers from competing with wealthy, unionized Western workers. That's where the cronyism is going on. Now, you mentioned that in reality there is not really that much of a documentation of actual physical abuse in sweatshops because if someone is actually showing up and getting abused all day, they at some point the dollar is just not going to be worth it to them anymore. But I'm curious, if have you seen any cases where there was documented abuse? And if so, are the workers able to get any kind of recourse against a company that does in fact abuse them? Or is that just difficult in a country that might not have a legal framework that we might have here? Well, we have to be very careful about where we define this abuse as occurring. So are we talking about abuse that makes somebody come to the job or abuse on the job? When I talk about slave labor, I'm talking about the abuse that would make someone come to a job. So basically a de facto enslavement of them through the threat of violence if they do not come to work. That is exceedingly rare. Uh, I've looked at tons of sweatshop cases reported in the popular news from basically about 1995 up to present. And it's only a handful of times that there's something that might conform to that situation. But even in those cases, it's often a gray area. I'll tell you the most common that you see on this is where workers are being held in a factory compound where they live and work there in a foreign country from their birth. And they were brought there by an agent of the factory. So basically, somebody who promises them a job in another country pays to transport them there in return for them working for a certain amount of time at the factory. And in those cases, it's, and then they'll withhold their, their passports from them so they can't go elsewhere. Those are the gray areas where there might have been fraud and coercion to get them to come, and now they're being held, but it's unclear from the reporting that goes on around it. That's a handful of cases compared to the many, many times that you see this in the popular press. So that's the, the real type of coercion I was talking about, not whether someone slaps you on the wrist at work or, or yells obscenities at you. One more thing I'm curious about, are there companies like bigger companies like Walmart or Nike that do have factories overseas? Have they done anything to change their own working conditions in response to public outcry and that kind of thing? Has there been any kind of sort of free market response to that? It's usually not Nike or Walmart or any U.S. company who directly employs sweatshop workers. It's almost always domestic subcontractors in these countries that get contracts from the big companies in the United States or Europe to produce for them. But that said, there's been a movement towards kind of supply chain management where they're controlling their brand image through their sub-producers. I think that there is a marketplace for what people call ethical branding. So if a company wants to advertise that, you know, we make our products and pay our workers above market wages and have these working, these better working conditions, and if consumers find value and I don't want to pay more for that, there's nothing in the economics that I've explained that is against doing that. But what I would caution is that we have to be sure that we're doing something that creates additional demand in consumers' minds. You can't just simply mandate this. Because if this doesn't create extra value in consumers' minds, it's going to end up unemploying workers and throwing them into worse alternatives. That said, another caution is often people care more about feeling good than actually doing good. So some of the brand imaging that goes on with this is simply fraudulent. There's a group shop with a conscience guide, and they advertise that everything you can buy from their product on their website is sweat-free. The workers have living wages, the right to unionize, good working conditions. And it makes people feel like, oh, we're helping poor people around the world buying their products. 
But if you actually map out where their factories are located, the vast majority are in Canada and the United States, where working conditions would already be good anyway. So what it is is destroying jobs in poorer countries for the benefit of wealthy union workers in the United States, but yet people thinking that they're doing good for these poorer workers. So we have to be very careful about it, but there can be a role for it. And I wish that organizations would spend more time, instead of exposing sweatshop conditions, exposing frauds like this to help make ethical branding more efficient, actually. Now, Mr. Powell, I read in another interview that you have an interesting story about your grandmother who, in the 1920s, worked in what many today would call a sweatshop. Can you just briefly touch on that? Uh, Sure. As I mentioned, I grew up in the Merrimack Valley in New Hampshire. So it was my great-grandmother, and uh, she worked in a place called the Cardinal Shoe Factory. And, uh, you know, it had moderate wages and tougher working conditions of what we'd associate with a, a sweatshop today. She wasn't the only one. Actually, my stepfather's father worked in a sweatshop in the same area, and he did maintenance in the building. And one of his jobs was to convert the machines over from water power to electrical power at the end of the workday. And because of the dangerous wiring and such that was in the building, this is uh, right around 1920, he threw a switch in there and actually died on the job because of the unsafe wiring that existed in this sweatshop. It was a product of the level of development we were at at the time compared to the improved standards that we have today. Benjamin Powell, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Can you just let our listeners out there know where they can find your book and where they can find any other projects or writings that you might have going on? Sure. The book you can find at Amazon.com, Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy. And you can learn more about the Texas Tech Free Market Institute at fmi.ttu.edu or my own website, benjaminwpowell.com. Well, it's certainly an interesting subject, and you're certainly an interesting guy to have on to talk about it. Thanks a lot, Ben. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Mark. Take care. We will be back after a little break. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetronpaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetronpaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, we are back after a very interesting interview with Benjamin Powell, the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University on the subject of sweatshops. Now, when looking at any subject from the libertarian point of view, the real question that we should always be asking is, are someone's rights being violated? And rights don't include a lot of the things that, say, progressives and that kind of person might call a right, say, a right to an eight-hour day, or a right to a certain hourly wage, or a right to get a break X number of hours. Those things aren't really what we would call rights in the libertarian sense of the term. To a libertarian, every man and woman has the right to use their own body and their own property in any way they see fit so long as it isn't infringing on the rights of others. In our relatively economically advanced society, if a 16-year-old goes to work at a factory for 12 hours a day and makes a buck 25 for that, many people are going to be appalled by it. These early economic conditions are what enable people in these countries to earn capital to acquire skills they otherwise wouldn't. You know, Ben mentioned that if a factory like that opened here, they just wouldn't have any workers. People wouldn't stand for it. I don't know anybody in the United States that's going to go work 12 hours a day for a buck 25. What's the point? But a buck 25 in the United States and a buck 25 in Bangladesh are very, very different things. And a lot of these factory workers are making more money than a lot of their contemporaries that don't have the factory jobs. They are kind of seen as the higher-end worker in these societies. So it's all very relative. Not to mention the fact that the option to work in these factories keeps a lot of kids away from quite possibly much more dangerous activities, such as stealing or prostitution or just simply starving to death. It is another case of the scene and the unseen. We see a 16-year-old kid go to work all day long, work 10 hours, make a buck 25. That's what we see. What we don't see is a 16-year-old kid who doesn't have the factory job, who's out there churning tricks or making no money whatsoever and living in absolute poverty. This is the unseen. And that's kind of our mission over at LionsLiberty.com. I want to keep exposing a little more of the unseen, looking at things a little deeper, all through the lens of the libertarian perspective. Because you know our motto, at least I hope you do, is to advance the ideas of liberty daily. That's what we do at our website, LionsOfLiberty.com. Hope you guys go check it out, and we hope you keep checking out this podcast which you can, of course, subscribe to on iTunes or using the Stitcher radio app. And we hope you keep being interactive. We want to communicate with you guys. I don't just want to tell you what to think. I want to have a conversation. So please find us on social media. Hit us up. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Google Plus, you can find us there, too. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, hate mail's okay. Just try to be nice-ish. I don't know. <laughs> you can email me, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. That's Mark at lionsofliberty.com. I am thrilled and happy to get any and all of your feedback. So please keep it coming. And if you keep that coming, and you keep listening, and you keep clicking on the website, I'll keep doing this. It's pretty simple. We'll keep talking about controversial subjects, like sweatshops. We'll keep trying to make you think of different ways to look at things. 
That is my goal here with the Lions of Liberty podcast. I hope you're enjoying the ride. I hope you'll keep coming back each and every week. And until then, guys, you know you gotta live long and live free.